0: This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. Today I want to tell you the story of the little girl that never was. Well, that's not exactly right, a sort of misnomer. The probability, though, is pretty great that if at the beginning of our story it took place in our time, the world would probably have lost a beautiful treasure. With our desire for perfection, as well as the medical advances we have, the parents of this treasure would have learned that something wasn't right in this pregnancy, and it's so often the case the baby probably would have been aborted. But we're talking about another time, another place, so many years ago. Oh, it may be hard for us to visualize what life was like back in the 1200s, but it sort of shows that every century has its own problems, and life is important. But so often, selfishness rules the day. In the time of our story, Italy was divided into a number of states and regions, resulting in a series of wars for power and control, where the rule might be considered that might makes right. At any rate, there were classes of people where the powerful lived in comfort, but the majority had to fight just for their daily bread. You get the picture. In the mountains to the southeast of Florence, there was a state known as Massa Treberia that produced much of the lumber for construction in Rome, and the castle of Matola was a stronghold for the defense of the area and was a target for neighboring states to take control. The leader of a nearby state, through treachery and intrigue, gained control of the castle and threatened the very existence of that state. However, a strong, vibrant commander named Parisio was able to gather the forces and, through clever maneuvers, was able to regain the castle and save the state. Oh, he was a handsome nobleman who became what we today might call an awe-inspiring icon. Well, after the successful overtaking of the castle, he took his bride, Amelia, to live there. He reveled in his popularity and played the hero to the hilt. And to add to his pleasure, Amelia was expecting their first child. Sometimes, though, egos get in the way of reality, and Parisio knew. He just knew that the baby would be a boy, so he started to plan the grand celebration of the birth of the child who would one day take his place. Baptism was mentioned, but not being particularly religious, Parisio reluctantly added that to the festivities. In addition to welcoming his new son and heir, the self-impressed leader also planned two great festivals. One, a party in the castle, and then a luxurious party at their other home, where dignitaries would be dining on gourmet foods with entertainment by wandering minstrels. A great celebration! And then the big day arrived. Amelia went into labour, and the baby arrived. But the baby was a girl, not a boy, and not a perfect girl not a pretty little baby. The baby was deformed, with not just one, but multiple handicaps. She was not only small, which was the least of the problems, she was a hunchback. One leg was significantly smaller than the other, so she would always be lame. Plus, she was a dwarf, and, worst of all, she was blind. Parisio was shocked, as was Amelia. The townspeople were anxiously awaiting the tolling of the bells announcing the birth, but the bells remained silent. The proud Parisio could not acknowledge that not only did he not have a son, but had a crippled daughter. So he sent word that the baby was very ill and was not expected to live. His pride would not accept a less than perfect baby. After all, he had his image to protect. The servants were sworn to secrecy, and one woman was selected to care for the child and The baby was to be hidden from the outside world. Only one servant would be in charge of the child. The local priest, Padre Capellano, insisted on baptism, but Pericio resisted and and then only reluctantly agreed due to the problems, his refusal might create a problem with the Vatican since they lived in a Vatican state during that period of history. The servant in charge of the baby asked the parents the name of the baby, and with a shrug said, name her what you want, but don't name her Amelia. So the servant chose the name Margaret. Now the question arises, what will people say when they see this deformed and blind child? Well, to Paricio and Emilia, the answer was simple. The servants were so sworn to secrecy, and she would be hidden. Probably her only visitor was Padre Capellano, who started teaching her religion in her early years, and discovered that in spite of her many handicaps, she appeared to be a very bright little child, with an uncanny ability to understand his teachings about God at the tender age of just five. She was able to navigate the small area of the castle in which she was kept, and the staff, shocked at first at her appearance, began to marvel at her abilities, including learning all of their names. Of course, her parents ignored her completely, and despite Padre Capolano's pleas, she was kept in her room, and whenever visitors came to the castle, she was not allowed to leave but one day a lady was visiting the castle and by accident happened to meet little margaret in the hall they struck up a conversation and the lady asked who her parents were little margaret's attendant arrived just at that moment announcing to the visitor that the little girl was ill and should not have left her room and then they whisked her away when parisio was told how close the secret of his hunchback daughter became known He decided he had to find a way to make sure that this would never happen again. He remembered Pedra Capilano's comments about how she loved to pray and immediately had an idea. There was a small chapel in the woods. He would send her there. He had a cell built with a window looking into the chapel where she could hear mass, plus an opening in the other wall where food could be passed in. And little Margaret was removed to the chapel in the woods, and the door sealed up with the child inside. She was just six years old, and this was to be her home for thirteen years. Probably her only visitor was the pastor of the chapel, who became her regular visitor and visited through the opening in the wall. He was amazed at how brilliant was her mind and how she thirsted for more knowledge about God. She heard about fasting, but she was only seven years old and immediately sought to please God with regular periods of fasting on only bread and water on Fridays. Seven years old. Well, as I mentioned This was a time of turmoil, and the area of Massa Trabaria was again threatened with an invasion, and with at least a semblance of parental concern for her safety, Margaret was taken with the family to their other home in a distant village, swathed in many clothes to hide her image. Once there, she was hidden away again in an old vault in the basement where food was brought to her. This was to be her home for about a year. Now, about that time, in the town of Castello, there were stories about remarkable cures for those who prayed at the tomb of a holy priest. The previous danger to the territory was now gone, and Parisio felt that if so many cures were taking place to ordinary people, surely this god would grant a cure for someone so important as he. So Parisio and Emilia bundled up Margaret and, with his military entourage, left early in the morning for Castello, where they stayed in an inn near the site of the priest's tomb. Early in the next morning, they took Margaret to the tomb and told her to pray hard. Parisio and Emilio waited and waited, but no cure was forthcoming. And in disgust and anger, Paricio and Amelia decided that this was their opportunity to be released from the burden of her responsibility, and they left to return home, leaving Margaret all alone to fend for herself regardless of her blindness and other handicaps. She spent the day in prayer, waiting for her parents to return. Then night fell, and she spent the night huddled on the steps of the church in near-freezing weather. In the morning, other beggars arrived early with the choice spots by the church, and there was Margaret with all her, all of her handicaps. She was just four feet tall, but to them she was competition. When asked about her parents, she would only say that they had taken care of her for twenty years, and now it was up to her to care for herself resentful at first about her, but they found that her gentleness, thoughtfulness, and kindness attracted the beggars to her. But what struck them most with greatest amazement was her thankfulness for God's love. Fearing that the streets at night were not safe for this blind, disfigured, happy young woman, different beggars would take her home with them to the hovels where they lived. In one place, the quarters were so bad, they shared their space with animals, and it was little more than a stable. And finding her crying in the morning, they were afraid that it was because of her surroundings, but she exclaimed that she was crying with joy because she had the opportunity to be in a stable, just as Mary, Joseph, and the infant had been. To the people of Castello, Margaret was becoming a familiar sight. To many who at first found her appearance disturbing were strangely now seeing her in an entirely different light. Her cheerfulness, and above all her holiness, seemed to obscure her physical appearance. And despite all the problems she had to face, she found the greatest happiness when she was in church and praying. And above all else, she did not feel that life had been unkind to her. She regarded all her difficulties as a special gift from God because she knew that He truly loved her. Many people would take her into their homes and provide shelter and food. When one family would have their finances stretched too far, someone else would step forward and provide shelter. And then a strange occurrence began to happen to every family who assisted her. If they had a particular difficulty in the family, it would be solved. One family in which the husband and wife were constantly at each other's throats in anger, well, they were now getting along beautifully. If someone needed a job, a job would unexpectedly appear. If there was a family disagreement, that disagreement would be resolved and so on. It seemed that everywhere someone was caring for Margaret and on them God was smiling for the taking care of his very special child. History tells us that there was a convent in the town known ironically as St. Margaret's Monastery and Margaret was introduced to them with the suggestion that she would make a wonderful member. Margaret was overjoyed and joined the sisters. She was able to not only attend Mass, but to spend time in the chapel praying. Because of her blindness and other disabilities, it was feared that she would be a liability and add extra burdens to the nun's already busy schedule. But this was not the case. She earned her keep, and, in fact, she was able to undertake a number of other tasks, assisting many of the sisters in their responsibilities. Margaret was deliriously happy living so close to God. But... This was not to last. The foundress of the order died, and the strict rules by which the sisters lived were quickly being relaxed and were being replaced with more ease and comfort. Margaret, however, did not relax her devotion and the austere lifestyle she practiced where work was a constant act of prayer. This became an annoyance to the remaining sisters who liked more freedom. Margaret's continuing holiness made them uncomfortable. For example, one rule was for silence during scheduled times of the day. Margaret kept the silence. The nuns didn't. And there were specific times for prayer and adoration. Margaret always kept those times. And the list goes on and on. Now, remember Margaret's intelligence. She had made promises to God when she entered the monastery, and she intended to keep her promises. The rule forbade any expensive gifts being given to the sisters, and yet gifts were offered and accepted by all except Margaret. She was not trying to antagonize the other sisters, but to live the vows she had taken before God. Well as the days passed the sisters became more and more uncomfortable with the holiness of Margaret they were afraid she was making them appear bad and that that she was trying to act superior but nothing was further from the truth and so in order to placate their own consciences they asked her to leave as she left the convent She was attacked by despair, like a voice speaking to her, saying, How stupid you are! After fourteen years imprisoned by your parents, don't you see that the more you try to please God, the more misfortunes you encounter? Wake up and do things in moderation. Life will be more pleasant for you. As her thoughts seemed to move from bad to worse, the wrath of doubt seemed to increase in her soul as though God was telling her to stop bothering him, that he had no use for her, and that it was not the nuns who had rejected her, but God himself. Oh, Satan was having his go at her. His attack was strong, and then just as things seemed that life was hopeless, as she would always do, Margaret turned to prayer, and divine grace seemed to flow into her soul. Her mind raced back through the years, when, as a child locked in her cell, she had offered herself to God and told Him to do with her what He wanted. Her mind hearkened back to her childhood, when Padre Castellano had taught her about the wonders of God, and she said as her goal, the road to Calvary. God, it seemed to her, was now taking her at her word, and is she not now, in effect, saying no to God? In her meditation, she had constantly reflected on the passion of Christ. She was always focused on the crucified Christ, dying on the cross when most of his disciples had turned their backs on him and left. If she followed through with those earlier thoughts, Would it not be like Christ saying to her, Margaret, are you leaving me too? The tears were now flowing down her cheeks, ashamed at those thoughts. How could she ever leave him? A promise was a promise. She was his to do with as he pleased. She was his ever-willing servant, and she would never forget her promise. She was his forever. Now she was back on the street. The beggars and people of Castellano had raised eyebrows. Why does one leave the convent? Oh, the nuns ask her to leave? Well, then what is it about this person so crippled that that the holy sisters themselves have asked her to go? Well, maybe she's not such a saint as we thought. Maybe it's at all an act that she's not as holy as she pretended to be. As she hobbled along the streets of Castello with her cane, people were making snide remarks to her and about her. She would hear their snide remarks, their insults, and greet them with a smile. Certainly she heard all their slurs. Her hearing was about all that was good, but she would always defend the sisters and their holiness and speak freely of the many virtues they possessed." There's an old saying that goes, truth will out. And little by little, the real story emerged about how Margaret was in effect forced out of the convent because she would not lessen her faith and commitment. A little later on, one of the townspeople found her in the church praying and rushed up to her apologizing for the way she had been treated and all Margaret would say was how good and holy the sisters were. The lady immediately took Margaret home with her, and, as the old phrase goes, when God closes one door, he opens another. In the town of Castello, there was the Montalati, which was an organization of lay women who were members of the Order of Penance of St. Dominic. Incidentally, this organization eventually developed into the Dominican Third Order. This organization was for older women, widows, and so forth, who wished to live a more religious life. But they, for one reason or another, were not able to live in a convent. But they were bound together to be a more religious group and to live a more religious schedule of life. They wore the white habit of the Dominicans, with a leather belt, with a long, soft veil, a black cloak, or mantella, which the name mantellate came, The rules for membership didn't quite fit Margaret, but Providence has a way of acceding to the will of God, and she was admitted as a member. The decision was historic. She was the first unmarried woman to be admitted. The Dominican emphasis on prayer had a special appeal to Margaret. In addition to the prayers prescribed by the Order, Margaret knew by heart the 150 Psalms of David, the office of the Blessed Virgin, and the office of the Holy Cross. In learning of St. Dominic's penances, Margaret felt she was not doing enough to please God, so in the distance at night she would hear the bells for matins, and after offering her prayers, would spend the remainder of the night in meditation. And then in the morning, hearing the bells again, she would go, cane in hand, tapping her way to Mass and Confession, every single day. She practiced mortifications similar to those of St. Dominic, and despite her many handicaps, she began to care for the sick and the dying, limping through the streets and alleys to provide food, medicine, encouragement, and prayer. She brought many hopeless sinners to conversion and penance through her prayers to St. Joseph. Her Visible acts of charity became known not only throughout her own city, but the entire area, so much so that many of the more prestigious families would now be providing housing, but but she would never accept a comfortable room, always choosing a space in the attic. She would make predictions, and they would come true. Then there were cures and other miraculous happenings. Margaret was the godmother of a young girl who later became very sick with a prolonged illness, and despite the best in medical care, the child became critical, with many fearing she would not last the night. Well, Margaret remained outside the door, kneeling in the hall, all night praying. And as the church bells tolled in the early morning, the girl woke up, greeted those around the bed, arose and said, I have been cured by my godmother. The houses of the day were largely built of wood, and in the depths of winter, large fires in the fireplaces would help warm the houses. But one night in the house where Margaret was staying, sparks ignited the wood and great flames erupted. Neighbors rushed in with a bucket brigade. When someone remembered Margaret being in the attic, they frantically called for her. They could see her upstairs through the flames and smoke. She tossed her stole down the stairwell, telling them to throw it on the flames. They did, and all the roaring flames instantly stopped. And then there was the story of Alonzo of San Mario, who was innocently jailed and, while incarcerated, learned his son had died. He blamed God and blasphemed at every opportunity using language that made visitors run in fear as he became violent when God's name was even mentioned. Margaret and several women visited him in prison, and while they were there, Margaret folded her arms and began to pray. The women froze petrified. They knew how he would react. Alonzo instantly started to rage and blaspheme, but he couldn't form the words. Something was preventing him. Deep in prayer, Margaret rose about 20 inches above the floor as Mario's attitude suddenly changed. Tears began to fall from his eyes as he sought God's help. Then Margaret's body slowly descended back down to the floor. Stranger still, to every one present, Margaret appeared not ugly, but for a moment radiantly beautiful. During the last years of her life, she confided to her confessor that whenever she attended Mass she could see Christ incarnate on the altar. The priest, knowing she was sightless, asked what he looked like, and she said infinite beauty. Well, this has been just a small part of her story and her life of love and sacrifice that continued until her death on april 13th 1320 she was just 33 years old the same age of christ when he died on the cross Huge crowds attended her funeral, including a couple who brought their crippled daughter, who was mute, not being able to speak, and suffering such curvature of the spine that she could not stand or even walk. With much difficulty, the couple made their way to Margaret's coffin. They placed their daughter on the floor next to the casket and pleaded for her intercession, and soon the other mourners joined in. A moment later, Margaret's arm moved, touching the child, who then stood and walked and spoke for the first time. Her words were, Margaret has cured me. Because of the love and devotion and sanctity of Margaret, she was buried in the church, and if you go to that church today, you can see her body enclosed in glass that remains incorrupt close to her beloved the child that was born deformed a hunchback crippled and blind is one of the glories of the church she was beatified by pope paul v in 1609 and her cause for canonization is under way we can pray o god by whose will Blessed Margaret of Castello was blind from birth, that the eyes of her mind being inwardly enlightened, that she might think without ceasing on you alone be the light of our eyes, that we may be able to flee the temptations of this world and reach the home of never-ending light and that Blessed Margaret of Castello be a glorious illustration of the real value of life that shines in the beauty of God's love, and that she may be an example to us when we feel overcome with difficulties. In those times, let us not forget Blessed Margaret of Castello and what she endured for the love of God as she showed us the value of life. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network.